Acts 4, verse 32. At the 10 a.m., I got every single number wrong. I don't know what happened to me. I said, it's probably a bad day to do my taxes because they'd be like, what in the world? I'm like, I don't know. So hopefully that doesn't carry over. Acts 4, 32. I got that one right. It's a good start. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Can you guess what we might be talking about today? Giving, right? Stand up and cheer. Shout for joy. Say, yes! All year I've been waiting for a message on giving. Praise God, he answered my prayer. <laughs> oh, I know giving is not a sexy message. But did you know that there are about 500 verses on prayer, about 500 verses on faith, and there are 2,000 verses on money? So if you're gonna teach the Bible, at some point, you gotta talk about giving. Quite a bit, actually. And here's why. Jesus in Matthew 6, 24 says this. He says, you cannot serve God and money. It's the God of money, mammon. You cannot serve God and money. You're gonna love one and hate the other one. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you can't serve God in sex. He doesn't say, hey, you can't serve God in power. Hey, you can't serve God in reputation. Hey, you can't serve God in athletics. He says God in money. Here's why. What I've noticed in 46 years is those other gods, and they, we can make idols of all those things, they come and go with time. But you know the constant one? no matter how old you are or young you are, the constant one that we're gonna struggle with? Money. My son, Myron, he's already asking for a credit card. He's four years old, right? He doesn't know how to count, but he knows money. I know he knows what a quarter is, he knows what a dime is, he knows a nickel, he knows a dollar from a $10 bill. I want that one, not that one. I'm like, dude, how do you know that? You can't even count, doesn't matter, he knows it. It's money, money is massive. So here's what we're gonna do, not sexy, you know, what is giving? What does it actually mean? How are we supposed to give? And then why? 
Why does the Bible have 2,000 verses on giving? So first of all, what is giving? Please know this. Giving is not lending, paying, or buying. The reason why I say that, you would think that's pretty clear, is because most of us have probably said this at some point. We've probably said, I'm not going to give money to that guy, gal, anymore because I don't like how they spent the money or they didn't respond to me in a way that I wanted them to. Guess what we just said right there? You didn't actually give the money to them. You were trying to buy something from them. You're trying to buy a behavior or buy a certain way of spending money or buy a certain kind of relationship with them. That's what you're actually trying to do. You didn't really give it. You were trying to buy something instead. See, when you give, what you're saying is this, I no longer control that thing. It is now outside of my control. I get nothing back from it. I require nothing from it. It's now theirs, period. And that kind of giving is super hard. That's why there's 2,000 verses on money, because it's super hard. I learned how hard it is early in my life. I was 17 years old, driving down 7th Street, had a couple errands to run, and then I was going out to my job at Fred Meyer. And it was the very first time in my life I saw this. I'm sure it had happened in other places, but it had finally moved here to Grants Pass. I'm driving on 7th Street. I come to 7th and G, right on the corner there of Safeway, and there's a man standing out there with a sign that said, hungry, need food. I had never seen that before in Grants Pass. I'm like, whoa. And with him were these two little grubby children. I'm like, oh, that poor dad with the two kids and no food. Oh, it broke my heart. And I was not a rich man. I had $5 to my name, which was for dinner that night at Fred Meyer. And I had, at that time, I was making $3.35 an hour at Fred Meyer. Different world then, huh? So I'm not rich, but I felt like, oh, I've got to help this man. So I pulled around onto F Street and did the big circle and then pulled into the Safeway parking lot and then got out of my car and I walked to this guy and like an awkward 17 year old, I'm like, hey, you know, I saw your situation here. I saw you and your grubby little children and I just thought, man, something has to be done. This cannot go on. So here's all the money I have. You know, here's my $5 and God bless you. And I just want to hug him. Man, I felt so good about giving him that money. And I ran my errands. I was on cloud nine. Like, yeah, I gave, that felt so good. So then five o'clock or so, it's getting close to five when I have to go to my job. I'm driving down now F Street, heading out to Fred Meyer, and I see this giant blue car come pulling up alongside me. And I look over, it's a dude I'd give him five bucks to. I'm like, he's got a car and it's better than mine. Mine's a little Volkswagen rabbit, brown rabbit. We call it the brown hair. His is better than mine. Like, oh man. And then with him was a lady. And then in the backseat were two other people. And then in the back little windshield area, the little grubby kids were shoved up back in there. And then they kind of passed by me on the back windshield that said this, Grateful Dead, 219 shows and counting. See you in Eugene. And I was like, huh? What? No. And I slammed the accelerator. I'm like, I'll show you Gratefully Dead, you guys. <laughs> but they drove a real car and I was a Volkswagen. They were gone in the night. 
And that day I was so angry. My stomach's grumbling. I'm like, ah, because I didn't get giving. I still wanted to control it. I didn't want him to use that money to go to a Grateful Dead concert. Now, I'm not saying you don't pray about things and you don't spend wisely, but the moment you give it, you say, I don't control that anymore. Do with it what you want. God has led me to give this and now it's no longer mine, it's yours. The reason why is because that's how God gives. It's Matthew. I'm gonna not mess up letters now or numbers. I'm gonna mess up books of the Bible. It's Romans. How do I get Matthew? Man. My wife made my tea this morning and she made it double. She put in a black tea and a green tea. And like I came in for my study when I come in after I'm done. And I was, she's like, you are hyper. I'm like, you made my tea too strong. I said, I don't know what's gonna happen to me. Now I know what's gonna happen to me. I'm gonna really screw up in the 11 o'clock. Now I'm like, Argh. if I fall off the stage, just go on, go home, God bless you. So that was, I digress. Now I forgot where I was at. Romans, thank you. Man, you guys are good. Thank you. You may be doing more of that. So if you can pay attention, it will help me. Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says this. It says, the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. It means when God gives something, he doesn't regret it. He doesn't try to get it back. He says, I've given it to you and it's yours. That's how we're supposed to give. Matt, if you give like that though, won't people take advantage of you? Sure, totally. That's why you need to pray and pursue God and walk with him before you ever give. But once you give, then you give like God. No, I gave it, it's gone. And here's what I believe. I believe if you give that way, no matter what, God's gonna use it for his kingdom. Here's why. This happened within the first six months of Edgewater. Gal comes to us, she's got some children. She's made poor financial decisions in her life. She is ready to lose her house. Just, you know, everything's going bad. Power bill, that's outrageous. You name it. Kids don't have clothes. She comes to us that way. A group of families at Edgewater rally around her with some pastors and help her out. Get those bills paid off, get her clothes for her kids, presents for them. Just start to walk with her well. She gets things in shape. Things are going well. After four months, poof, she disappears. Like, hmm, well, that was a lot of effort. Oh, she used us, all that kind of stuff. But then here's what happens. She ends up making poor choices again. She goes to a court. I hear about that she's going to court. So I think, I'm gonna go back there and get our money back. That's what I'm gonna do. <laughs> no. She goes before this judge and the judge begins to ask her some questions like, hey, I see there was a period of time where like your bills got paid and all this, you had a lot of money. What happened there? And he was trying to see if she'd done something illegal. That's what he was trying to figure out. Were you doing illegal stuff? She's like, no, a church came alongside me. Well, what church was it? It was Edgewater. Well, and, and the judge asked a lot of questions about this. And then after that court, the judge goes back into his chambers and he calls us. And he tells us that whole story, what had happened. We're like, yeah, we know her. Oh yeah, totally, that's legit. He's like, I've been hearing more and more how you guys have been helping people that are in trouble or addicted to drugs. And then this judge began to break down and cry. 
And he said, would you please help my son? He's addicted to drugs. See, God snuck Edgewater into a place where pastors don't get to. At least if you are getting into that place, you shouldn't be a pastor anymore, <laughs> right? He snuck us in there because there's gonna be a judge who's gonna need help with his son and we help his son. That's what I believe now. If I am led to give, if God's leading me to give, then I just say, okay, it's gone. Jesus put it like this way. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Be a forgetful giver. That's really what he's saying. After you've given it, erase it in your mind. It's gone, I gave it. It's not mine. I have no control of it. It's, I was led by God to give this. I pray, I trust it was a good thing to do. And now it's gone. That's the way to give. That's the biblical way to give. No strings attached. I gave it, done. So that's what giving is. Number two, how are we supposed to give? The key text on this is 2 Corinthians chapters eight and nine. That's a really great section. Just read that, study that. I got that one right. Those are the right numbers. Thank you for, you can check that. Someone can read it quickly. Uh, and in that, verse seven says this, chapter nine, verse seven says that don't give like this. Don't give grudgingly. The word grudging there literally means out of grief. Don't give out of grief. So a pastor is going on and on and on about the needs and how much he needs money and how much, and, and you just keep hearing it. You're like, oh, good grief. If you will be quiet, I'll write you a check. All right, the Bible says don't give like that. Please don't give like that. And very often what we seem to do is we seem to make God broke. And so then we're like, come on, give God, you could do it because God's broke. God responds to that, it's Psalm 50, where God says, listen, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Okay, we don't live in an agrarian society. Probably very few of us own cattle. So cows don't make sense to us. We're like, a big deal. You own some cows, big whoop, right? Like the only reason why we get cows today is for a tax break. Look, I have cows. It's a farm. I want a tax break. But back then, the way that you figured out how, how much money you had was counting your cows. It was the original stock market. I have a lot of cows. God says, I have enough cattle to fill a thousand mountains. How many cows is that? That's quite a few, right? And then it goes on to say this. If I'm hungry, I'm not gonna ask you for food. You're not gonna be at your house late at night and hear something rustling around in your fridge and come down and it's God like, hey, bro, I'm hungry. Heard your wife was a good cook. Where's all the food? Oh, you ate it all? Oh, you glutton. I'm sending you to hell. You're not gonna have that experience right? That's what he's saying. I'm not going to come to you with my needs. That's what God is saying. I've got plenty. So when we do things that make God, makes God seem broke, I just say, that's the wrong way to do it. When a pastor says, hey, give until it hurts, I say, don't give if it hurts. Because if you give and it hurts, eventually that pain will come on that church. That's what will happen. You'll bring that pain to that church. Don't give that way. And then it says, secondly, don't give grudgingly out of grief. And then the next word is, don't give out of necessity. Hard word to translate, but it literally means this. Intense, repeated arm twisting. Don't give because someone is repeatedly, 
intensively twisting your arm to give. I read that and I think, man, do the preachers on TV read the Bible? Because that seems like what they do sometimes. Don't give when people do that to you. And there's all these kind of ways that church manipulates people into giving, right? When I was young, there seemed like there was always the traveling healer who'd make the short dude's leg grow. Remember that? I don't know what the deal was like in the late 70s and 80s, but it seemed like there was a lot of people with one short leg. And they'd be like, hey, come on up, let's pray for you. And like the, the, the leg would like grow. You're like, I don't think it's actually, I think you're just moving your leg funny. And like, praise God, he's healed. Send out the offering plates. Let's take another offering. I'm like, that's kind of manipulation. I don't think we're supposed to be doing those kind of things. Necessity, grudgingly. Oh, the worst example of this in my lifetime, perhaps if you're as old as me, you remember it. It was 1987 with Oral Roberts. It made international news because he came on his show and he said, if I don't raise $8 million by this date, God's gonna kill me. Do you remember that? It was shocking, like, whoa, God kills people because they can't raise money? Oh man, what a hard business to be in right there, man. That's, I do not wanna be in that business, right? It's crazy. And he raised the money and it was all to save his ministry called the City of Faith. Eight million bucks. Six months later, he goes bankrupt. I think sometimes when I hear somebody doing the intense arm twisting, I think maybe that ministry has served its purpose and maybe it's time for it to pass the baton. And maybe now you're sitting in the back of an ambulance with a corpse trying to get a pulse with all this effort and all this money when God said, I'm not doing that anymore. I've moved on. And wisdom would say, God's not broke. Okay, it's time to move on. Don't give those ways, the Bible says. Don't give that way. I think sometimes when we start moving in those directions, it's because we've lost faith in God's ability to move his people to generosity. as a trust issue, it's very core. So the Bible says, don't give that way. how these people give? It's Acts 2, it's almost a re repetition of Acts 2, but look at these two verses. Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Then verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. We'll get the greed side of this in chapter five. But here's what you see. Never once in the first four chapters of the Bible, first four chapters of Acts, are they commanded to give. There's no like, hey, you need to give. It's this natural response to God saving them and filling them with his spirit and then being around people. Because you know the story, 120 went to 3,000 and most of the 3,000 were from out of town. And now they're wanting to learn about Jesus. And then their numbers swelled to 10,000 by this point. And there's just needs in it. And so people are like, hey, you're my brother. You have a need. Let me help you. Without anybody telling them to do it. I get to give. Man, I've been trusted with two houses or three houses. I get to give. And this is a really momentous part of the church. I get to give to this thing. And that's the way it's supposed to be. 
2 Corinthians 9, 7 says this, God loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful there in the Greek is where we get hilarious. It's just, you're writing out your check, you're just, yeah, woohoo, right? And not because it's gonna bounce. Like I'll add an extra zero, four zeros, why not, man? Make as big as I want. No, it's, I get to give. Well, I've got enough that I get to give. Wow, how blessed I am. I love that. God says, I love that. I love when people give like that. Not arm wrenching, not good grief, but hilariously. Well, Matt, isn't this message like a little bit late? Because didn't you have like a building campaign? Yeah, but I don't do messages over that. We just happen to be here and we talk about it. Now, I am still just blown away that we raised $850,000 in a month and we're at a million now and things are going ahead. It just, I, I can't stop smiling about it. It just amazes me. It's amazing, totally. That God, you know, we just presented the information. Here's what we're doing. If you wanna pray about it and join with us, great. If you don't, hey, no problem. But we think it's a good idea. We think this is our time. And you guys responded. I love that. Praise God. So lastly, here's what I wanna do. Well, why do we give? I think if you look at all the 2,000 verses, there's a bunch of reasons. I'm gonna give you five. Here's why we give. Here's why God wants us to be givers, okay? Number one, giving grows us up. Giving grows us up. Giving is not to raise funds for God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He has resources that you and I don't know about. Giving is not to raise funds, but it's to raise kids. I wanna raise you up. I wanna grow you up, right? Because there's something broken in us. If you've had children, when they learn to talk, what, what are their first words? Maybe mommy, maybe daddy, and then it's no and mine. And when a preacher starts talking about giving, what rises up in our heart is no, mine, right? <laughs> so God's like, I wanna take care of that. I wanna grow you up. I want you to realize what I've done for you and who I am for you. I want that to move you. We have a saying at Edgewater. Boys are takers, men are givers. And I know plenty of 40-year-old boys that they have not come to the realization that God put you where you're supposed to be in a home, with a family, with kids, with a spouse, in a church, in a community, to give. And they're just takers. They're always taking from people. They're always, how do I get more for me? Oh, you're just a boy then. I know plenty of young men that are men. They've got it. I'm a giver. I'm here to sow back in. That's what I'm here to do. So number one, we give because it grows us up. Number two, we give because it's the evidence we've finally got grace. So you can look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. The whole horsepower for that is Jesus, who was rich, became poor for your sake. Look at what Jesus did. It's his grace that's to move us. But you see it real, really in our text as well. So it says, end of verse 33. Remember, there was no verses before. Great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them. I love that link. 
Man, they're just overwhelmed with God's grace, all that Jesus has done for them. And their response is, how can I not give of my time, my treasure, my talent? How can I not do that? I've received so much, I wanna sow in as well. So I sat with a guy who told me his testimony and he made mistakes and done some stuff, but walked into a church, got saved, was discipled, loves Jesus now, awesome. He said this, the reason why I gave to Edgewater, he said, because I have grandkids and my grandkids don't know Jesus yet. And maybe, maybe it will be that building that's the place where my grandkids go in and they learn about Jesus, just like what happened to me. I walked into a church I didn't pay for, I didn't help, I didn't do anything for. Some other people before me sowed into that church so that God's grace could be given to me. He goes, I want that same opportunity for my kids. I said, that is so brilliant. That's exactly it. I look at my own life and I think about all the people and all the churches and all the resources that have been poured into me to make me what I am today. How can I not? Because of his grace, man respond in the same way. Number two, we get grace when we give. I don't mean we get it, it means we get it, we understand it, it motivates us, it moves us. Wow, yeah, I'm gonna be that conduit as well. Number three, it kills the idol of greed. It kills the idol of greed. Every time you give with the right way, not trying to buy or pay or manipulate, when you really are not letting your left hand know what your right hand is giving, every time you do that, you're just giving a little paper cut to this idol called greed. And greed to me is the one idol that better than anything else knows how to hide in the human heart. No one's greedy. I've had people come to me and confess every sin in the book, fornication, adultery, Porn, you name it, man. Murder, I went to jail for murder. Oh, wow, okay. Appointment's over, let's go. <laughs> right, you name it. Never once unprovoked have I had somebody say, man, I gotta meet with you. I'm greedy. You know why? Because there's always someone richer than us. Like, I'm not greedy. My neighbor with the new RV and the boat and the fancy house at the lake, he's greedy. That dude's like, me? I ain't greedy, man. Bill Gates, he's greedy. Bill Gates is like, me? I ain't greedy anymore. I'm not the richest man. Jeff Bezos, he's greedy. Jeff Bezos is like, oh, great. I'll find somebody. (laughs) Right? That's why greed hides so well in the human heart. And greed, stingy people are miserable. They make terrible parents. They make terrible employers. They make terrible neighbors. They won't let you borrow their quads. Like, come on, man. Be generous. What's wrong with you? (laughs) They're miserable. Google miserable rich people. You'll get about a billion hits. They're miserable. But when you kill greed, here's what I think you get. You get joy. So I read this book about a year ago. It's called Adam's Return. And there was this little thing that he talks about that I found fascinating. There's this group of people, very unique group of people, really rich, multi, multi multi-millionaires. 
And these rich people at some point in their life came to some kind of a crisis where they said, that's it, I'm done. And they gave away their millions, gave it away, gone. No more access to it. And then they went and lived in a third world country on like $1.50 a day. There's just a group of people that that has happened to. And so this researcher is like, wow, I gotta talk to these people. And so he went and talked to them, spoke with them. And, and then what was fascinating was, he said, the, the one common denominator between all these people that had done this thing killed an idol of greed. He said, the common denominator between all of them was this. They laughed a lot. When I was with them, interviewing them, talking with them, in squalor, without enough food, they laughed a lot. Google miserable poor people. You'll get like two results. Now, maybe because they're so poor, they don't get ever recorded, but I think there's something to it. See, when you kill greed, it's fertilizer for joy because nothing robs you like greed. Money is a great servant, man, great servant. You gotta have it, but it is a terrible master. So when you give, you're just putting the knife into the idol of greed. God's commands are never to take something away from us, but always to give us what we truly want. Matt, this thing's hurting you, bro. Let go of it. Let me set you free. Let me give what you really want, joy, laughter. Number four, giving demonstrates obedience. In Malachi 3, 8 through 12, God says this, test me. I know it's Old Testament, but the principle is right. Test me on this. We're told pretty much never test God except for in this one area. Test me. Give and see how I respond. See if I don't open up the storehouses of heaven to you. Test me. I have account after account of people that have given me, hey, this is what I experienced in my life. When I did test God, he passed. So just Wednesday, a gal grabs me right out here. And I didn't tell her what I was preaching on today. In fact, I would never tell that I'm preaching on giving because <laughs> empty the church. So I didn't tell her, she had no idea. And she says, I just wanna tell you something. I said, go. She said, I love safe families. Love what they're doing, love how it's helping kids, love what happened with the mom and the new house, and just love it. And so I felt like I was supposed to support safe families at a higher level than I did last year. But I didn't know where the money was coming from. But I really felt this is what I'm supposed to do. So she said, I just did it. She goes, the next week, my boss offered me the opportunity to make more money at my job. She says, that's just what God does. When I test him, he always passes. I could give you account after account after account of that. Test me. Then lastly, number five, when we give, we're God-like. Who knows John three sixteen? For God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give, 10%? 20%. He gave himself. He gave the best. That whosoever believes in Jesus should not perish, but have eternal life. That's what God does. God's a giver. The Bible begins with God giving. 
I'm gonna create this great space for Adam and Eve. Eat of every tree that I planted for you. Eat of them, enjoy it, right? He's a giver. Jesus says this to us, John 14. Hey, I'm creating a place for you. It's gonna be awesome. It's called New Jerusalem. I'm gonna give that to you. The common theme in the Bible is God's a giver. When we give, we're God-like. We're demonstrating that we're in his family, that we look like him. And Paul would put it, put it like this. He says this. He says, it's better to give than to receive. At Christmas time, do you like opening your presents or watching somebody open a present you gave? Let's say it's a present that, that it's like, so Matt so loved his daughter that he gave. Something really special that you really figured out, you really searched out, you really know they liked. Don't you just anticipate them opening that present, looking at what happens on their face, right? So there's a couple of scientists that decided to study that. Is it really true? Is it better to receive, better to give than to receive? Because it doesn't seem like that way. It seems like we're selfish and that it's better to get stuff than to give stuff. So they did this great study. They put this helmet on these people that monitored brain activity. And then they had them do some altruistic, total giving things to see what part of the brain fired. So these guys, you can, you can Google them. It's um, Jorge Mall and Jordan Grafman. Look at the caffeine's still working. So these guys did that and they found that the part of the brain that fires when you give is the same part of the brain that fires when you have sex or eat a really good meal. A blizzard from DQ, like, mmm, <laughs> that right there. And they're like, oh, it's true. It is better to give than to receive. Your brain is firing the way God designed it to actually fire. It's showing that we're part of the Imago Dei. That's why we give. We give because it grows us up. Because it demonstrates we, we're understanding what grace is. It kills this idol that so well hides in our soul. It's the one way we're supposed to test God. And man, it shows we're part of his family. We're God-like. And so every week on Sundays, we come to the table. And there's a bunch of reasons why we do that. One of them is this. The Bible says this, that because of what Jesus did for us, that we've been redeemed. What does it mean to be redeemed? The biblical, when, when the authors of the Bible talk about redemption, they always point back to one event. That event is Israel enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. And that God with a mighty hand redeems Israel out of that. That's redemption that we are underneath a, a pharaoh in Egypt, a tyrant that wanted to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus, our Passover lamb, comes and redeems us out of that situation. And the Bible says this, when Jesus redeemed us out of that, he freed us from sin, the law, and death. Sin, the law, and death. So Wednesday night, I was chatting with the Wednesday night crew, 
and I asked him, what's the worst enemy we have? Russia? China? North Korea? ISIS? Iraq? Kids screaming? Global warming? What's our worst enemy? Death. No matter what, we will all face that one. We do a lot of things in life to stave off death. So I asked, I said, I wonder if you could add it up, how much of the global economy goes to getting us to outrun death for an extra year or two years or four years or five years? They say the majority, like 80% of healthcare costs are in like the last 5% of your life. They're all stacked in there. Why? Just give me an extra couple months or a year or two years. All this effort, all the research that goes into universities throughout the world to find some kind of a cure for something that's just putting off death for a little while. You'll outrun it for another week, month, year, two years, 10 years. But eventually, it'll catch you because it's our greatest enemy. How much? How many diet fads? How many gym memberships? Or, you know, you're on a treadmill going, what are you doing? I'm trying to outrun death. Bro, you're not moving. Right. That's what it is. Some herb from the jungles of Peru. This is going to do it, man. You, you eat this and you're going to live a long time. You're going to outrun death. Brussels sprouts, right? <laughs> kale. The only reason to eat kale is to outrun death. There is no other reason. I'm telling you. <laughs> Choice. DQ blizzard, kale juice. Okay. I only choose kale and people always like, kale's so good. Is it better than a DQ blizzard? No, but I'll eat it. Why? Because I want to outrun death. That's the truth. But here's what the Bible says. Jesus killed death. That's literally what the Bible says. He killed death. Our greatest enemy, Jesus killed it. So here's one of my favorite little verses. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54. It says this. When, when is such a key, when this perishable, this perishable right here, it doesn't matter how much yoga I get on or Pilates or if I'm drinking kale juice till I'm green, this is perishable. One day it'll perish. When this perishable puts on imperishable, then shall be brought to pass this saying, Oh, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? We'll never get it, I think, this side of the world because this world is so like ingrained in us that it's all here. But Paul says this, in the moment that you step through that door, then all of a sudden you're like, that didn't hurt. What? There's no sting to that. Oh my goodness, what was I so worried about? Jesus has kicked the teeth out of this thing. There's no sting to it. Wow. Wow. I've been redeemed from the curse, the law, and sin, and death. Wow. That's why in the early church, I think they got it better than us. And it says this, that they were so amazed at what Jesus had done that he kicked the teeth of death in, that it says this, they love not their lives even unto. They're willing to give the most precious thing that we all have their life. Why? Because they knew Jesus had kicked death in the teeth and they had been set free from the worst enemy of all. And that led them 
to generosity. I'll give my life for you, bro. I'll give the absolute best I have for you because Jesus kicked death and killed it. That's what we eat and drink right here. We eat and drink that kind of power, that kind of strength. And it transforms us from stingy, greedy people into a generous community that transforms the world. So Jesus, We are grateful recipients of your life, death, and resurrection. We are grateful recipients of the victory that you secured on our behalf at Calvary. I pray, Lord, for my own heart that can be so greedy and so stingy and so small-minded and so manipulative and so controlling. Lord, I pray that you would forgive me and cleanse me from those things. I read about this community in the book of Acts that acted in ways that are superhuman incredible, beautiful, brilliant. And I see how far I fall short. So I pray this day for all of us, Lord, as we eat and as we drink, I pray that our hearts would be healed the idols of stinginess and greed and smallness and control. And we could say like those of old that we love not our lives even unto death because you've won for us. You are our victor. You are our conqueror. You are our archegos, our hero. May, Lord, as we eat and drink, may you kill the idol of greed in us send us out as an army of generosity. And I ask this in your name.